0: I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to Exodus chapter 33. We're going to be looking at a big chunk here. We won't read the whole thing right away. But Exodus 33 and verse 1, all the way down through chapter 34, and verse 9, hoping we can make some uh, sense of what's going on here. So I'll read verses 1 through 6, and then 12, down through the end of the chapter, and then in the body of when we look at it, all pick up on the rest. Before we read this, um, take a look at it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. It's just truth. We need it. We need in our minds and our hearts to believe the things revealed in it. And We also need to be those who are busy doing it, not just hearers. And so we pray that you will convince us of the things we learned tonight that we would not be a wishy-washy people, but indeed those who are convinced of the truth regarding your holiness and our sin and our need for a mediator. And we also pray that you'd make us a people who are committed to following you no matter the cost in light of what we look at. I pray this all for Jesus' sake, amen. All right, Exodus chapter 33 and verse one, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here you and the people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites go up to a land flowing with milk and honey but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now down to verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless to our hearts and lives this evening. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here. Uh, Tonight, if I would say to you the words, you can't live with them and you can't live without them, you might immediately conjure up a wife joking about her husband or a husband lightheartedly joking about his wife, right? Uh, Males would say of females, you can't live with him, you can't live without him. And females would say the same thing about uh, males. Again, lightheartedly, usually in a joking context. And in a far more significant way, what our passage tonight is teaching us is this about God. God is someone we can't live with. He's also someone we can't live without. He's someone that is impossible to live with, or better, maybe better said, God can't live with us without consuming us. And yet we can't live without him. We don't want to live without him. And so we need a solution to this problem. How can we live with God? How can we have a life with God without being consumed? And I want us to look at just three things tonight. We can't live with God. We can't live without God. And thirdly, the mediator who brings us together. We can't live with God. We can't live without God. And to the mediator who brings us together. So first, we can't live without God. Chapter 33, verses one through three. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. So God is promising, notice this first, blessing to the people. So verse 1, go up from here to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That sounds pretty exciting. He's promising, hey, I promised the land. I want you to go up there and go to that land that I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you look at verse two, he also promises, I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And then notice what else he says. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. <laughs> on the surface, this sounds pretty amazing. Wow. We're actually going to get the promise made to Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob fulfilled right here. We're about there. And God's going to get rid of all of our enemies. And this is a land flowing with milk and honey. It sounds almost like heaven on earth. No conflict, no wars to fight. God's going to take care of us. But then the blessing promise comes with a catch. And I I want us to catch some of the language here. If you look at verse one, God says, go up from here, you and the people, the people, not my people. If you remember back in Exodus 19, you know, these are the Lord's people, right? These are his treasured possession. But here he's saying the people, like these are people removed from me. These are people that I'm no longer concerned about as it were. There's some distance here. And notice as well, verse one, the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. Now, this is not the first time the Lord's told this to Moses. But in this context, the Lord's putting the Israelites squarely in the world of Moses. These are your people. They just worship the golden calf while I'm revealing how to worship me rightly in the tabernacle on the mountain. These are the people you brought up out of Egypt. And then finally, he says in verse two, I will send an angel before you. Now, that may sound wonderful, but what the Lord's saying is, the reason that angels is going to go before you is because I'm not going anymore. That's the end of the line. So this wonderful love story about God taking his beautiful bride, this great family love story about God the Father taking his firstborn son out of Egypt into the promised land has an abrupt ending, so to speak, or so we're given to understand at the beginning of exodus 33 they actually didn't make it very long together and god is promising that they can have heaven upon earth unearthly paradise but without him verse 3 i'm not going to go up among you lest i consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people he can't go with them why can't he go with them he'll consume them the word just means to finish off to complete but in this context it means to bring someone to completion to just finish them off. <laughs> he says if I go with you there's not going to be a single one of you left. There will be no single Israelite left out of the entire nation if I go with you. You will all be consumed because I'm holy and you're not. You are too sinful to go with me. Now it's very important that we realize what is going on here because this really is the same reality we live under today. God's able to dwell with any human being without consuming and destroying us. Any one of us as human beings by nature, as we come into this world, is not able to have God live with us. We can't live with him. We are not able to live with him, to dwell with him, to be back in the Garden of Eden, or to be in his heaven without being consumed. It's a dreadful reality. Now, many people view God as either a tyrant who is implacable and has anger management problems, or as a doting grandpa who always says yes, but he's neither. His absolute justice cannot abide the presence of sin, and it's not tyrannical. It's not a bad mood swing when people die on a kind of sinning against God. That's his strict, perfect justice coming to bear upon their sin. That's the perfection of God's character, which cannot abide the presence of sin. And God is not a doting grandpa who says, oh, everything's just fine. No, our sin requires punishment from him and his wrath. That is maybe the most heartbreaking, tear-jerking, devastating reality about being a human being in the world after Adam and he fell into sin. I know we like to, I feel like we like to joke around and have tons of fun, etc. cetera. <laughs> Life is filled with so many blessings and a lot of stuff to enjoy. But As we look at humanity, as we look at this world, as we look at human beings, there is a really sobering, a really hard, a really devastating truth regarding what it is to be a human being. And that is none of us can live with God anymore. It's just not possible unless something radical takes place. And so the Israelites are learning that. Remember, we're in the Exodus. We're at the beginning of the Bible. We're maybe learning the alphabet. We're on like letter C. And letter C and D and E are the Israelites having to learn Oh, God's this holy. Oh, wow. He can't go with us because if he does, he will consume us. The second thing I want us to notice is in verses four through six, we can't live without God. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now, what the people realized and what they came to experience is this reality. We don't want to live without God. He just said, we can go. He just said that he'd give us this promised land and make a way into it. But he's not going to be there. And our God won't be with us. And that just cut them. And the Lord said, look, remove your ornaments. And so the people obeyed, which was an evidence of repentance. We might call this a moment of clarity among the Israelites. And the reason that their ornaments are so important is to remember what they used to make the golden calf. Their ornaments, right? All of their gold, their jewelry. So they stripped themselves of that as if to tell the Lord, we're sorry, we've blown it. When you put all this treasure in our hands, we are so prone to making gods out of it. And so they took off these ornaments and repented in accordance with the Lord's command. One thing they did not want to do was to go any farther without God. They understood the meaning of something, which I want us to understand, which I think the passage demands we understand that heaven and life without God is meaningless. Now, there are three people, two a little bit, you know, one in one paragraph, another person in two paragraphs and one person in one sentence wrote some things that I want to just read here a little bit regarding how important the presence of God is and a relationship with God is um, and what that means for heaven. The critical question, wrote John Piper, for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? That's what the Israelites are having to face. Heaven on earth in Canaan, which is a foretaste of the, the real true heaven that we're all heading toward without God. It doesn't sound very good. Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, God, the best portion of the Christian. What is it which chiefly makes you desire to go to heaven when you die? Is the main reason that you may be with God, have communion with him and be conformed to him? that you may see God and enjoy him there. Is this the consideration which keeps your hearts and your desires and your expectations toward heaven? If you might live here in earthly prosperity to all eternity, but destitute of the presence of God and communion with him, having no spiritual intercourse between him and your souls, God and you being strangers to each other forever, would you choose this? Could you be content to stand in no childlike relation to God, enjoying no gracious intercourse with Him, having no right to be acknowledged by him as his children? Or would such a life as this, though in ever so great earthly prosperity, be esteemed by you a miserable life? And Ray Orland, he just kind of comes out and says it. (laughs) The worst this life can shove down our throats, but with the nearness of Jesus is heaven on earth the best this life can give, but without Jesus is a living hell. And that's what the Israelites are learning. And that's what we're able to learn from the passage as well. Lord, if we can't have communion and fellowship with you, if you're just putting us in a place where we get to enjoy all these incredible experiences, but you're not there, we have no fellowship with you. We will still have this God-sized hole in our soul. That even the best of heaven can't fill up we need you to fill it we were made for you and so we would admit and confess with the israelites that indeed if god's not going to be in heaven if he's not going to go with us in this life we don't want to go a step farther well we've got a mediator who brings us together now we're going to be reading these verses i want us the, the focus here now is just staring at moses and his relationship with god fascinating so Verse 7, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who saw the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now in the midst of this rift between a holy God and his sinful people, a people that he's saying, I'm I'm jumping off this train right now. You guys are going without me we are introduced to a mediator, Moses, who is especially close to God. Now, this might seem like a random interjection into the text, but if we take a look at it, it's not random. God is doing with Moses what he can't do with the Israelites. God cannot come among the Israelites even for a moment. Verse 3 again, I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way. And he can spend hours every day with Moses. What's going on here? Moses is an Israelite. Moses is a sinner like you and me, but Moses is in a position of a mediator. And so God's spending a lot of time with Moses and Moses isn't consumed. Moses has a certain office. He's got a certain position in all of these relationships, which marks him out as special. And I want us just to note that. That's why we read that passage. And now if you look at verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. And you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people?" Moses does a few things here and I want to point that out. He argues with the Lord. Moses is acting the part of a mediator between God and man. If you actually listen to what Moses is saying, you might think this is bold. <laughs> like, you don't talk to God this way. We don't approach God and tell him what's what. Hey, these are, you hear what Moses said? These are your people, right? What did the Lord just get done telling Moses? These are the people that you led out of Egypt. And Moses says, what? These are your people. Oh, by the way, This is pretty bold. It's pretty brash in Moses' part. Again, Moses is acting as a mediator. And if you look at verses 12 through 13, Moses is asking the Lord, who's going to go with us? Who are you sending with us? Are you coming with us? Are you sending somebody else with us? What are your plans? This nation is your people. What are your plans? Let me know if I found favor. I want to know what's going on here. And verse 14 is very interesting. God says he will go with Moses alone. My presence will go with you and I will give you singular rest. Well, there, there it is again, the temptation for Moses to have a great nation made of him. God's saying, okay, you want to know my plans? I'll go with you. Let's just, you and me, we'll go to Canaan. We'll leave the Israelites in the wilderness and they can just die a horrible death. And me and you, we'll just go do this together. And in verse 15, Moses says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. In other words, Moses is throwing his lot in with the people. Twice Moses says in verse 16, I and your people. You catch what he's doing. Moses is clinging to the Israelites. Moses knows he has the favor of God. He knows, he heard what God said, I'll go with you. And Moses says, basically, if you want to go with me, then you have to take the Israelites with me. Me and the Israelites are one package deal. That's what Moses is telling to the Lord. Again, bold, (laughs) very courageous, but he's saying, we can't be separated. As the mediator goes, so goes the people. And Moses is completely turning down the favor of God and throwing his lot in with the Israelites. God is promising Moses' blessing. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest, singular. But Moses says, again, if your presence will not go with me, don't bring us up from here. I'm with the Israelites. I will not go alone. I exist for the well-being of these people. And so the Lord said to Moses, verse 17, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For I have found, for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. So now the Lord's saying, okay, I'll go with you and and with the Israelites. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me, where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Now this is even more glorious. Remember, the Israelites are a people God won't even be among, lest they be consumed. And Moses is not only with the Lord hours every day, Moses makes an even bigger request. Hey, show me your glory. <laughs> now God's going to reveal some of his glory to Moses. So again, What a contrast between the mediator and the people. Moses has almost unlimited favor with God. He can't see God in all of his glory, but God says, hey, we can pull this off. We'll put you in the cleft of a rock. You can see my backside as it were. I'll show you some of my glory. And indeed, that's exactly what takes place. But this is a very intimate relationship between God and the covenant mediator. And it's set in contrast to God's relationship with his people. He can't live with them but he can certainly dwell with this mediator and this mediator can see God's glory. Moses and the Lord have fellowship, but the Lord and his people have no fellowship. What might we say about this? We could say this. It's really nice to be Moses. Moses is really living. He gets to see God in his glory. He gets to enjoy the favor of God. Moses is really living and the Israelites are not. If you wanted to be anybody in this story and have your life go as theirs, everyone would pick Moses. Make me Moses. He gets to enjoy the presence and favor of God. And then it happened. Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is the Lord answering Moses' request to show him his glory. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, an abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So the Lord showed him part of his glory. He passed by Moses. But the emphasis is on the name of the Lord. The Lord reveals his character. And what this means for Moses is simple. Moses has the favor of God. Moses is acceptable to God. Moses can enjoy the presence of God without being destroyed by God's presence. But even in the midst of Moses enjoying God's glory as he passes by and reveals his name and his character, we're told this in verse nine of chapter 34. M- Moses saying, if now I found in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. you catch what Moses is doing again, this mediator, Lord, he just won't stop. This is an incredibly tenacious mediator. Lord, I get us see you every day in the tent of meeting. Lord, you've just shown me an incredible aspect of your glory. Lord, you've said these Israelites, you can't go with them. And now you've said you will. I get to enjoy all this blessing. And I want these people to enjoy the blessing of your presence too. Moses is tenaciously acting as a mediator. But the Israelites still have a problem on their hands. And here's the problem. Verse six of chapter 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, none of that sounds like a problem. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Now we have a problem. Now, it's interesting that God is merciful and gracious, patient and slow to anger. He abounds in covenant love and faithfulness. He forgives sin and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. How can God forgive and not forgive at the same time? He will not clear the guilty, but he forgives sin. Did you catch? I mean, look at, what, look at what it's saying. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Let me paraphrase that. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but he doesn't forgive the guilty. How does that work? This is the problem the Israelites have. If God is in our midst, he's loving and gracious and merciful but he can't clear us if we're guilty. And so the Israelites are consumed. How can these two things go together? How can God be merciful and also punish iniquity? Not clearing the guilty means that everyone gets punished for their sin, and thus there is no mercy or grace, but mercy and grace mean that the guilty don't get punished for their sin, and thus the guilty are cleared and let off free. This seems like an impossible contradiction in God, which can't be resolved, and the question remains, how will God not consume and destroy the Israelites? How will God remain faithful to his name? How will he pull this off? Because he said now he's going to go with them. And the key to unlocking this passage is actually found in verse 17, Here, it's one key. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name." So God is saying, I'll go with you. Why is God going to go with the Israelites? Because Moses has found favor in God's sight. Because Moses is going to act as the mediator. That's why God is going to go with them. This is a lot like the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a tiny picture. It's not a full picture, but it's in picture of Jesus, Moses, is. This is just like the covenant of salvation, which God and Jesus Christ made before the world, the agreement between the Father and the Son, where the Father and the Son agree to save all those whom the Father chooses to give to the Son, and the Son voluntarily takes the place and mediates for those whom the Father has given him. That's the picture here. We, uh, theologians call it the pactum salutis. We might call it in English the covenant of redemption. This agreement between the Father and, the medi- and, and Jesus the mediator that says, look, these people are wretched. We can't dwell with them, but all act as the mediator just like Moses is acting as the mediator and tenaciously holding on to the Israelites. So the son uses his favored position with the father to acquire favor for sinners. Yet, how does this happen? How can a holy God live among his sinful people? How can God remain God, merciful and gracious, yet perfectly just and punishing every single sin? How can God remain God and yet have a relationship with His sinful people with us? And the answer is the mediator, the greater than Moses. Moses pictures for us what Jesus brought us fully and completely. And Tim Chester said it this way. I think it's so helpful. Forgiveness and punishment, mercy and justice, grace and truth meet in Jesus. When Jesus died, your guilt was punished so that you could be forgiven. Your judgment was taken so you could enjoy enjoy bliss. The truth of your sin was recognized and accounted for so that you could know the joy and peace and life of God's grace. We can't live without God and through Christ, we don't have to. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you, says God in Exodus 33, five. But now God has destroyed his people in the person of his son. So there's no penalty left to pay and we can live with God with confidence now and enter his promised land and the full glory of his presence in the future. And Moses got to see the backside of God, which is incredible. You got to see part of God's glory. But here's what's incredible. When the actual mediator came, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, he didn't just get to enjoy the fullness of God's glory. He actually is God's glory coming into the world. He in him, the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell, Colossians 1.19, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he's made him known. How much better of a mediator is Jesus than Moses? Moses saw an aspect of God's glory. Jesus is God's glory, come in the flesh, tremendous, and we beheld him, John would say, full of grace and truth, just tremendous. In order for us to be able to see God, we need a mediator who, like Moses, threw in his lot with us, who is dedicated to us, who identified with us, and who sticks by our side. And we have that in Jesus. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. You could use that language of Jesus. If your presence will not go with me, if you won't take these people, then there's no reason for me to go to the cross and die. The way Moses identifies with the Israelites and refuses to be blessed without them and uses all of his favor and status with God in order to bless them, the way Moses does this is quite incredible. If you looked at Moses in his day, you would say, this is an amazing mediator. This guy is unbelievable. Why is he sticking with these people? He even calls them stiff-necked. He admits it. Yeah, we're stiff-necked people. They are. (laughs) Absolutely. But he just will not let go of them. What an incredible mediator Moses is. And the favor he has with God is just amazing. And it gets even better in the new covenant because Moses enjoys the presence of the Lord with the Israelites, but Jesus loses the presence of God on the cross so that the Lord will go with us. See, that's incredible. Moses is going to enjoy the presence of God as he went with Moses and the Israelites. But in order for Jesus to redeem a people who could have fellowship with God, he lost the presence of God on the cross. And Moses gets to see God's glory, but Jesus is forsaken by God on the cross. The opposite of glory, having to go through our condemnation. And Jesus identifies with us and throw, throws in his lot with us so much that it actually becomes a curse and he becomes sin. That's how tenaciously Jesus stuck to us. He actually took on flesh, our flesh, beloved, and he became sin, he became a curse so that we could be delivered from being cursed. Because every one of us are in the exact same condition by nature as the Israelites. If we want to have any life with God, we would just be consumed. The way back to fellowship with God is permanently destroyed. There is no way back. That bridge is bombed. There's no way across the river anymore, unless Jesus, he's the only way back. And in Jesus, we have somebody who has stuck so closely to us that we actually identify with the worst part of us. I'll take their sin. The punishment that they deserve, Father, forgive them. Let them go. Put it on me. And that's exactly what Jesus did at the cross, beloved, for the worst of us. This is just incredible. You won't find a mediator more tenaciously loving than Jesus. There is no love like this in all the world. There is no God who will come down here and say, treat me like an enemy. Give me all their baggage, all their garbage, all their sin, all their evil deeds, and make me pay for it. Treat me like I'm the most vile sinner who's ever lived so that they can get off the hook and they can be counted righteous. It's just incredible the kind of mediator we have. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus will never let us go. And in the greatest test of his commitment to Our salvation, when Jesus was so greatly tempted to walk away, when Jesus was tested in the Garden of Gethsemane, when all the forces of hell gathered against him to drive him to the cross, but also away from the cross due to the cup he had to drink, he stayed. He just went right through it. That is a mediator that sticks tenaciously to us. And now every believer enjoys the favor and the blessing of God's presence. And we will most perfectly enjoy it when we get to heaven. And it's all because of Jesus. He is the only reason we're getting there. And what a reason it is we're getting there. Such a perfect mediator. Let's pray.